You know, um, this is really in response to something that happened a couple, uh, uh, two weeks ago, I guess, really. Um, when we heard our, our president speaking about us. And uh, it got me thinking a lot about what's going on in our world today and, and what the implications are for you, you and me. From the very beginning, Satan has questioned and perverted God's word. And you know, this is a very old scripture here. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God hath made. And said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat every tree of the garden? Now, we know, we know that that's a deliberate misrepresentation of what God said. And in reality, in this and in this next verse in Genesis, uh, he's, he's actually calling God a liar. So when you hear people who say, well, you can't trust the Bible, you can't this, or God didn't say that, that's a group of uh, tribal people that made up stories, or this is uh, something that you can't trust, this is the source of that doubt. It's Satan himself. Now this, of course, he's speaking to Eve, who God, God told Adam not to eat of the fruit or he would die. And the serpent literally here is calling God a liar. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good from evil. Now, the important thing that I want you to see in that verse is not only is he calling God a liar, but he's, he's alluding to something that we have all believed at one time or another, and that is that God is trying to keep something good from us. It won't hurt you. It'll be fun. It'll be nice. God knows you'll be like God. He doesn't want the competition. On and on you go. You know, people will give you all these reasons to get involved in things that God doesn't approve of, and he convinces us that those things that, he want, that, that Satan wants us to get involved in are actually good for us. It's only after we're in it, it's only after we're addicted, it's only after I'm 13 years old and smoking a pack of cigarettes a day that I realize it was a lie. I don't look grown up, I look like a baby smoking cigarettes. You know, but I thought I'd look really grown up if I could start smoking cigarettes. And that began a 10-year effort of mine to finally, finally quit smoking. Satan is a liar, and he starts off by calling God a liar. Now, Jesus called him out on that. In John chapter 8, he said to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. Now, that's an interesting thing when you consider the fact that he's talking to the most religious people in the world. And he says, you are of, that's the source, out of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father he will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. Satan can't tell the truth because he doesn't know the truth. It's not in him. When he speaks a lie, it sounds like the truth, he said. When he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of this. And because I tell you the truth, you believe not me. Now that's really the whole purpose of this message. Could probably stop now when you think about it. When you tell the truth, if you're a saved person, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you tell the truth, it sounds like a lie to the world. So you have to see there's a, there's a, a tremendous division between truth and falsehood. And in the lost world, falsehood sounds like truth, and the truth sounds like a lie. And you know, we've gotten in trouble lately with our president because of this very issue. John chapter 10, Jesus is telling his disciples about Satan's goal. And I wanted to include this 
The thief comes not only to steal, but to slaughter, to destroy. I have come that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. No matter how well the lost world couches its great and grandiose plans for the future, it will always end up with these three things. And you, have to, you can see it. You can watch it throughout history. People start with all these great and swelling promises, and in the end, thousands and thousands and thousands of people die. The only reason Satan is interested in the world is so he can steal, so he can kill, and he can destroy anything that God has done. Now, in response to what Jesus said, the Jews said this, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil. So when you find yourself in a situation where your spirit is at odds with the world's spirit and you speak the truth, notice the response. The world's response is always the same. They're going to call you a name. They're going to say you're crazy. You're mentally ill. You're this, you're that. You're, 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 you're the one that's in the wrong. They will always do it. So because Jesus exposed their duplicity in their lives, now notice at this point, there have been in Jesus's walk, there have been no major confrontations with the Pharisees that would for any reason at all turn violent. And all Jesus did was speak the truth. And then answered the Jews and said to him, say we not well that thou art a Samaritan, and has a devil. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself. I'd love to see a, a parenthetical explanation of just exactly what that means, that Jesus went and hid himself. I, I don't think he disappeared. I don't know what he did, but I kind of imagine that he just blocked their vision so they couldn't tell where he, where he was walking. I think everybody else could see Jesus, but the ones that wanted to stone him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now I'm sure by now, although I think the news cycle has actually rotated off of this thing now, I'm sure that you've heard the President of the United States has called us, you, and I'm quoting, the President of the United States of America, you are the most dangerous threat to our democracy in the history of our nation. I th when he said that, I thought, wow, talk about hyperbole. You or the most now I know he was really speaking about Trump supporters, and I do realize all of you haven't voted for Trump, but the truth that you stand for is really what's bothering him. It's not the fact that you wear a red hat. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen a MAGA hat in here. And I know some of you aren't even Republicans, but you are people of the truth. You're followers of the Holy Spirit. And it's not so much what you do. It's who you are that stands in their way. See, now he's focusing in on a group of, of conservatives and he, he wants to say white supremacist conservative Trump supporters are the biggest danger this country has ever seen. Now, he doesn't mean that. He means that Bible-believing, truth-telling Christians are the biggest threat to the plans for his administration in the history of the United States. You are in opposition to the current plans of the government of the United States. But the thing that, I don't know if frightened is the right word, I think amazed is more the right word. The thing that amazes me the most is we have gone from being the heart of the United States. 
the ones that started the uh, almost all missions, almost all hospitals, almost all caregivers to orphans and the needy, almost all nursing homes, almost everything good. The schools started in the churches, you know, all, from being the foundation of everything that's good in America, we are now enemies of the state. Now, I, I don't know if you picked up on that when you listened to the news. You are a threat to the status quo. Now, as I thought about that, I suppose really we are. We probably are the biggest threat that the United States has ever faced in terms of a socialist progressive takeover of this country. When you consider their plans, you listen to what they want to do. When you listen to what these leaders hope to do to our futures, when they push their corrupt plans and their corrupt purposes for your lives, when they plan to destroy our blood-brought freedoms, when they plan to export abortion worldwide and have us pay for them, when, when they're thinking about wiping out whole generations of one race or another, we are the only thing standing in their way. You are. These freedoms that we have, that they're trying to take away, we believe, according to our Declaration of Independence, came from God himself. And yet, they're denying that and calling us enemies of the state. I, I'm, I know where it's headed, and I'm not looking forward to it, but I'm really surprised. I'm surprised that I have lived long enough to be considered an enemy of freedom, their freedom, not my own. We are the enemy. And as they try to cancel more and more of our freedoms, more and more we become their enemy. Now we're actually studying the book of Luke. And I know it seems like a rather odd introduction to a woman who crashed a dinner party. But I want you to understand, their plans all too often are in fact the devil's plan for this country. Satan hates women. He always has, ever since that time in the garden. He hates our children. Who's the first person he killed? Who's the second person he killed? Who's the third person he killed? You can fake it, follow it right down the line. Adam, Eve, and Abel. Right down the line. Ever since the garden, he has been systematically trying to destroy anyone who stood in the path or the lineage of the Messiah. He's followed this throughout history. He's the enemy of everything that is true and decent. Everything that's holy in the world is opposite from what he wants. But more than anything else, he hates God and he hates his people, the Jews. And you can see this. You don't have to be a historian to see what's going on. What's surprising to me in, in this event, really now almost two weeks ago, is how leadership in this country has come out in the open and actually said what they were thinking. I think he kind of overstepped his mouth in doing that. Because we really are, in Christ, in Christ, we are the enemy of, excuse me, of Satan. Now, what I want you to see in our Luke passage today, you know, you could say, yeah, I can see, Bob, where if you keep talking like that, you're going to be, you know, an enemy of the state. And you, you could say, well, Bob, if you don't shut up, you know, you could be in trouble. I, I can understand that. And you can think, well, these people that are out protesting or supporting one thing or another, 
that, that's godly and right. I can see how they're putting themselves at risk. But, but what I want you to see in our passage today is there's a lady here. All she does is wash the Lord's feet. That's it. And all of a sudden, she became an enemy of the state. It's an interesting passage. So we're going to go to Luke. I, I hope I'm going to go to Luke something. Now, no one in any of anything that I've looked at has explained why this Pharisee wanted Jesus to eat dinner with him. Uh, but judging from his tone, the Pharisee's tone, and his heart attitude, I'm going to suggest to you that he was looking for a reason to find fault with Jesus. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Brope in the Greek, it just means food, to eat. And behold, oh, i got to do that to you, sorry. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner. Now, all kinds of speculation about what that means. But I, I hate to tell you, every woman in this city is a sinner. Every man in this city is a sinner. Every human in this city is a sinner. Watching my dog, I think he's a sinner too. You know, So you really get an insight into the heart of this Pharisee when he looks at her and calls her a sinner, unaware of the fact that his sin is infinitely more grievous to God. And you see this two worlds that are clashing together. This one who's self-righteously holding a dinner for the Lord himself and this other who wants no attention, nothing except to express her love and concern for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when they, when they ate, the men ate alone. The women might stand around the outside, but generally the men ate alone. And I understand that they sat on a pillow, generally, on their left hip. Well, that would have left me out for the past two weeks. On their left hip, they would lean against their left arm and their feet would trail out the back. So you have all these men around a circle, but from the outside, what you see is a bunch of feet going out to your right. So apparently, uh, that's, that's the situation she found herself in. And she wasn't really invited, but there were, I'm sure there were other women there listening to what was going on. And I'm guessing it just turned out coincidentally, I don't believe in coincidence, it just turned out coincidentally that she was standing directly behind the Lord Jesus Christ. And she had brought with her an alabaster box of ointment. Now, this sounds a lot like Mary of Bethany. This also sounds a lot like Mary Magdalene. But this is neither of the two, if, if the commentators are correct. This is the first time, and this woman is not either Mary or Mary, uh, in case you're confused. Of course, Mary's always a good guest, because it seems like half the women in Israel are named Mary. Uh, but in this case, we don't think it was Mary. This was just an, quote-unquote, unknown uh, lover of God. And stood as his feet behind him. See, his feet are trailed out behind him. He kicked off his sandals, and she stood behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with oil. Now, I don't know how you would feel about that. First of all, I couldn't get in that position if I wanted to. Secondly, I would be absolutely freaked out to have to go to a dinner meeting and take off my shoes. And third, if some unknown woman came up to me and started washing my feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair, I couldn't carry a conversation on to save my life. I, Jesus had such a remarkable uh, control of his attitude and his personage that this didn't upset him. 
And instead of seeing something like, oh, God, get your hands off of me, woman, he's thinking about, he's thinking about, you know, I'd be thinking, well, what about my reputation? What are people going to say? What, what are you doing? I can, oh, please. But he's not thinking that at all. He's going to use this experience. You know, I said nothing is of coincidence. He's probably thinking, first of all, what, what's going on here, Lord? And how should I respond? This doesn't feel comfortable, but what's going on? Well, anyway, you know the story. He began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Wow. Talk about freaky. I put that in red. Does it show up for you? Now, when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, I'm assuming there's other Pharisees there. Some of Jesus's people are there. We don't know how big this dinner is. We don't know much. But what we do know is he never said this out loud. He thought this in his mind, which is going to actually help to totally freak him out when the, the events occur. Saying, if this, if, if this man were a prophet, you see the attitude he has? If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. He's just thinking this in his head. And Jesus, I'll tell you, I wish I could respond to attacks. I wish we could all respond to attacks as graciously as Jesus does in this situation. You know, he could have jumped up and said, you ignorant fool, but he didn't. He didn't. Jesus said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. <laughs> I love that. And Simon goes, oh, master, say on. He's probably thinking Jesus is going to say, you're far more righteous than this woman. You know, why didn't she shut the door when we got in here? You know. Of course, Jesus, in his expertise, he says there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. A pence for what I'm sure many of you know is the equivalent in Jesus's day as one day's pay. So if you talk about owing 500 pence, you're talking about the better part of a year and a half to two years of your salary, right? That's how much he was owed. And the other 50. So we're, you know, we're closing in on two months of back salary. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? Simon, being an astute character, he said, well, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. And he turned to the woman, to the best of our understanding of these scriptures, this is the first time Jesus looked at her. The first time, using her as an example. And he turned to the woman and he said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Now, it is customary when you have a dinner in Jesus's day that you provide a basin. If you had a slave, you'd provide a slave or a servant who would wash your feet when you came in. But the very least you would do in this that day and age is provide a basin and a towel where they could they wore something that we would call sandals, leather sandals. Their feet got dirty and they would always want to wash their feet before they went into someone's house. And he said, you gave me no water for my feet, which it's an offense to do that. It's, it's as if this Pharisee is saying, 
you are not worthy of my hospitality. You see that? So Jesus doesn't say he took offense, but it is offensive to think of your dinner guest as not worthy of just ordinary custom, customary practices that happened in that community. But this lady has washed my feet with her tears. Now, what you have in her tears, I believe, now I'm making this up, but what I believe is a sign of genuine repentance. In the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, she recognized more than anyone at that dinner who she was and how badly she had failed to honor and serve the God of her youth. So here's a woman that's expressing incredible repentance because you can't be saved until you repent. Until, as long as you're like Simon and thinking, I'm better than her, I'm better than this dinner guest, I'm better than this Jesus, there's no salvation even available for you. You have to see yourself as a sinner. It would, would not have offended her at all to have been called, for her to have been called a sinner because she's probably the only one in the room that even recognized it. Now, if you're saved today, you understand what I'm talking about. You understand that sometime in your past, you recognize that all your good efforts, everything you've ever tried to do has always failed and has always been an offense to God. Furthermore, if you started reading the scripture, you came to a realization of the fact that you don't need to be a sinner every day or every minute or even once a month. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy, for whoever sinneth in one point is guilty of all. You, you really only have to sin one time and you failed. And you think, well, that's not fair until you realize the fact that, well, if your sin is murder, how many people do you have to murder to be a murderer? How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? How many things do you have to steal to be a thief? And the answer in scriptures is always the same answer. One. And this, this lady saw herself as a sinner. So you have this incredible contrast between a Pharisee, self-righteous, self-promoting Pharisee who's condemning both Jesus for being ignorant of this woman and this woman for being a sinner, see, in contrast to this woman who is so broken up over her own sins that when she recognizes where Jesus is, she begins to wash his feet, crying, and then to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. Which, by the way, is for her, it's, it's a very risky move. It's also very embarrassing to her because the, the average, I don't know if there's such thing as an average Jewish woman, if the, the normal, that's not even a good word, a Jewish woman, let's just leave it at that, would never drop her hair in public. She wouldn't let it down. It, it would be humiliating to her. So not only is she clearly repentant, but she's willing to humble herself at a level that could not only embarrass her, but it could endanger her in order to perform this act. Uh, I don't think enough has ever been said about how courageous this woman is. Thou gavest me no kiss. Now, when you went into, if you were a man, sounds a little freaky in America, but if you were a man and went to this dinner meeting, you would expect the host to come up and kiss you on each cheek. And this, this Pharisee wouldn't touch Jesus. Jesus was below his standing. But this woman, since I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. You wouldn't even kiss my cheek. She's kissing my dirty feet. Doesn't that tell you something about her attitude? My head with oil, that does not anoint. But this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loveth much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. 
And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. Now he said that in other places where they actually were thinking about stoning him. So this was a risky statement for Jesus. But he wanted to see, he wanted the people at that table to see that without repentance and faith, your sins cannot be forgiven. So she has, she has literally put her life on the line in this situation because of her faith in and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this, if this happened in our world today, we'd all go home talking about what a weirdo was the church today. But in Jesus's day, people were killed for this type of behavior, you see. And they that sat at meat with him, and I'm assuming these are the other Pharisees because I don't imagine, I don't even know if there are any apostles there or disciples at this point. We're in Luke 7. Yeah, he's already called his apostles. So there might have been some apostles there. But I'm assuming that verse 49 is talking about the other Pharisees, friends of the Pharisee that are there. And as they sat at meat with him, began to say within themselves, within themselves, there's something about Jesus that when you were with him, you were a little careful about what you said. It's appropriate. When God comes down to eat dinner with you, you probably think I better be on my best behavior, even though they didn't realize who it was. Or did they? They're still on their best behavior. Who is this within themselves? Who does he think he is that forgives sins? Now, because of this question in their minds, Jesus says, I'll show you who I am. And he said unto the woman, thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. He dismisses her. Now, in relation to what I started off at, this is a woman of, of no major reputation. She wasn't an important person. She wasn't supposed to be at the dinner. She was, in essence, a bit of a party crasher who had nothing. She wasn't carrying a sign or protesting with 300 of her friends. She wasn't making a scene. What she did, she did quietly behind what was going on. If, unless she bumped into somebody next to Jesus, other than the Pharisee with his big mouth, no one would have known what was going on. Uh, this, was, this was just a private thing, supposedly, between her and the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, when you think about it, with her silent tears, she has demonstrated to these Pharisees true repentance for her sin. By anointing Jesus' feet, she has demonstrated her faith that he is the Messiah. In her willingness to embarrass herself and be made a mockery in front of all these men, she has demonstrated that her love for Jesus is so strong, she's willing to take a risk. But the truth is, she hasn't done that much. You think, what is it that she did that made her an enemy of the state? And I'm, I'm going to say what I think. I think it was her simple and clear demonstration of love for the Lord Jesus Christ that showed the fallen world which side she was on. And even though she did nothing in terms of protest or statements or screaming or, or any outward ex explanation or display of her love for the Lord Jesus Christ, she still finds herself almost like a nuclear bomb at this dinner because she exposed everything that was fake about this religious group that had Jesus come for dinner. Now, my point is very simple. 
You can say, well, I'm not going to get in trouble with the state because I haven't done anything. Neither did she. I haven't created a rally. I haven't gone out and protested. I haven't said anything. I haven't gone online. We don't need to march in the streets to make the world angry at us. They know who we are. We don't need to go out and argue and criticize their lifestyles. We don't need to point out that what they're doing is wrong. They know it by just being in the presence of the Holy Spirit that is in us. They know who you are and they know who he is. How do they know that? Because Satan knows it. And when Satan knows it, they know it. All we need to do is quietly speak the truth in love and they will hate you for it. We are by, we are by default from the foundation of the world. Well, from Genesis 3 anyway, the fall. We are by default the enemies of everything that Satan is doing. And it, it's not because we're opposing him. And it's not because we're saying anything. It's because we know the truth. And no matter how much they lie, there's always one of us that can stand up and say, that's not true. I am not an enemy of this state. You are. From their perspective, however, we are. I think I have a slide on this. When it comes to the enemy's plans for our future anyway, we are the most dangerous people in this nation. Don't be afraid to be who you are. Don't be afraid to speak the truth. Because even if you don't speak it, you're still going to offend them. Stand up for what's right. Stand true to what is truth. And call out things that are false, false. Be brave. It doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter whether you're brave or not. You know, when the time is right, first of all, they're going to see you as their enemy. And secondly, God will take care of you. You don't need to be afraid. God is in charge here. We are the most dangerous people in America simply because of who it is that lives in us. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for our president. We, we don't even know where his head is at half the time, but we do worry that he begins to label your people as enemies. Seeing in them, Father, a greater enemy than any that has ever risen up against this country. Not because we're powerful like Hitler, and not because we're misled like the South was in the Civil War, and, and, and not because we're wrong, but simply because we know the truth. Father, we pray for our president that as he sits in his office, your Holy Spirit would speak truth to him and you would take charge of what's going on in this country. We pray the same for our leaders in this country. We pray, Father, that you would move on their hearts and save them from the confusion and darkness that seems to be reigning. I say seems to be reigning in this country right now. Lord, we just pray for protection for your people. We ask, Father, that you'd watch over us Keep us safe, but more than safety, Father, make us bold. As the disciples prayed when they stood against the leadership of Israel after your son's resurrection, Father, I pray that you would give us boldness too. In Jesus' name, amen.